So we are going to start near the end of the book of Matthew. Because see, there is a verse that shows up at the end of the book of Matthew that summarizes pretty much all the important themes of the New Testament. But it's a verse that no one ever memorizes. It's, it's a verse that is kind of uh, obscure. It's one that we pass over in the Easter week, but it's one that we very rarely pay cl- close attention to. But I want to start there with you now. It says this, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. I'm going to leave that on the screen here for you for just a little bit because there's some things in this passage that I think are abundantly important for us to get. The first phrase of the passage says, he saved others. And everybody back then knew about the miracles that Jesus did. Everybody knew that Jesus was a miracle worker. The rumors of him walking on water and and, uh, calming the storms made him seem like a Moses-level character. The rumors of him healing a blind man or raising a child from death made him seem like an Elijah character. The rumors of him being able to make food appear out of nowhere made Jesus seem like a godly character. There were so many things that Jesus did to save other people or to bless other people that the people who knew about Jesus were utterly flabbergasted at him. They were flabbergasted at his skill, his ability, his power. But on that day when he was hanging on a cross, the second phrase showed up. He saved others, but he can't save himself. That's a weird thing to experience, a weird thing to think about. A powerful person, so powerful they can raise the dead but not powerful enough to get down from a cross, not powerful enough to overcome the forces of Rome, not powerful enough to overcome the religious leaders of the Jews who said, no, this is the way we want to operate our community, and you're not part of it. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Their next phrase is, he's the king of Israel, but notice... When they talk about him as the king, they have a caveat to it. They say he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. That's the phrase there that basically says if he doesn't come down from the cross, we won't believe in him. If he does come down from the cross, we will believe in him. He's supposed to be the king, but our problem is that kings are supposed to do things. Kings are supposed to have power and authority. And if this king can't defend himself against Rome, then how could this king ever take care of us? You know, this last year, I think there's one thing that all of us can agree on. We live in a world that is so totally divided on so many ways, but I think all of us can agree on this one statement. I am disappointed in my leaders. I think every one of us could say, I am disappointed, I'm frustrated in and by our leaders. And it doesn't matter which political spectrum you're in. It doesn't matter which church you're attending. It doesn't matter anything. I'm disappointed in my leaders. 
And I'm certain you are too. There are things that we encountered this last year that we really wish our leaders would have taken action on to spare us from one thing or to spare us from another thing or to spare us from a third thing. And you've got your list. I've got my list. And I can identify the ways in which I think my leaders have let me down. And these people back in Jesus' day were saying the same thing about Jesus hanging on the cross. He's supposed to be the king. But if he can't even defend himself against Rome, why should I put my trust in him? Of course, that's obvious. If the king dies, you don't believe in the king. If the guy claims to be the king and then he dies, he's obviously no longer the king. So you don't believe in dead people. Believing in dead people is not a very smart way to operate in life. And yet these people are saying, okay, if he dies, we're out. But if he gets down from the cross, then we'll make him our king. You see, these people were just employing the basic schoolyard rules. Uh, Maybe you know about the schoolyard rules. Maybe you know about all the schoolyard rules. I'm just going to mention one of the schoolyard rules to you. It's this. We want the strongest person on our team, even if it's the bully. I remember when I was a kid and you know, we'd go out to recess and it was time for us to pick teams for kickball or, or baseball, tennis ball. We would play baseball with real bats, but tennis balls. Tennis balls would fly super far. It was a lot of fun. But anyway, I don't even understand how when I went to school at recess, we were allowed to carry in our own bats. Like that wouldn't happen these days. But anyway, so we would go out and we'd play kickball or we'd play this tennis ball, baseball kind of thing that we were doing. And I remember it was so exciting when it was time for the captains to be chosen and then for the captains to choose their team. Now, because I'm an obnoxious kind of person, I would frequently become one of the captains, but I would also frequently not be one of the captains, and I know that if I wasn't going to be the captain, there was one principle I wanted. I wanted the biggest guy in my class, Bobby himself. I won't tell you his last name, but I wanted Bobby to be the captain, and I wanted Bobby to pick me. Aside from sports, I wanted nothing to do with Bobby. He irritated me. He was, the, he was what I perceived as the bully of the classroom, mostly just because he was absolutely the largest of us all. And so, but if, if I was going to be the captain, then of course I was, going to, I was going to pick Bobby first. But if I wasn't going to be the captain, I wanted Bobby to be the captain who picked me. Because see, here's the truth. I didn't care if Bobby was going to play by the rules. I didn't care if he was going to be overly aggressive. I only cared that he was on my team. And if one of us is going to be the leader, between the two of us, if he's the leader and I'm on his team, that's great. If I'm the leader and he's on my team, that's great. I just wanted my team to have the biggest bully. See, the schoolyard rules say all you need is to have the strongest person on your side. This is the way life works. It's not just for schoolyards. It's for all through history. The chief always wears the biggest headdress. The king always wears the biggest crown. The highest king always has the biggest palace. No matter where you look, the stronger the leader is, the bigger the accoutrements of their leadership are. Because kings and leaders are selfish. 
And if they've gained a lot of power, they want all of their constituents to know about all their power. And so the chief wears the big headdress because he's the chief and he can make his headdress bigger than anyone else's and so on and so forth. But that's not the only reason. The reason the accoutrements of leadership are so great for the greatest, it's not just because of the selfishness of the leaders, it's because of the selfishness of the followers. Because see, here's the truth. If I'm going to be on a team with someone, if someone is going to be the leader, if I'm not the leader, then I want my leader to be better than anyone else's leader. I want my leader to be stronger than anyone else's leader. I want my king to have a bigger crown, bigger palace, bigger weapons. Because after all, if the leader's great, then we can be great. If the leader is great and he's on our side, that makes me feel pretty great. But if the leader can't be great, how could the leader make me feel great? Listen, this is the way our world has always worked. But the people look up at the cross and they say, so he's the king? Let him come down and then we'll believe in him. What's interesting about the book of Matthew is that more than any other author in the New Testament, Matthew is trying to make the point that Jesus is the king. And so this verse near the end, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, is a profoundly important verse because here is the king. And Matthew is saying, this dude, this dude who saved others, yeah, he's our king. But this dude who doesn't save himself, he's our king. And this dude who's hanging on a cross, he's our king. This dude who's wearing a crown of thorns, he's our king. This dude who will not fight Rome is our king. Even though you want to fight Rome, this guy is our king. The whole book of Matthew is trying to prove that Jesus is the greatest of all the great. That he is the highest of all the high. He is the king over over all the kings. Even though he's the man who apparently can't save himself. We're going to study Matthew because I think it's incredibly important for us at this time in our lives to learn all about our true king. We have all kinds of allegiances. We have all kinds of differences. We have all kinds of disappointments. I can be disappointed in my leader and you can be disappointed in your leader and my leader. We're disappointed in everybody's leaders, but it's time for us to get back to the Jesus who invented being disappointed with your leaders because Jesus is the one who was supposed to be our king and yet wouldn't even fight the Romans. The origin story of Jesus begins long before his birth. We spend time each year during Christmas reading the birth story of Jesus, frequently from Matthew, and we're going to skip over a few of those passages today, but I want to take you into Matthew chapters 1 and 2 so you can get the real story, the origin story of our King. It begins in Matthew chapter 1, of course, verse 1, where it says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Almost every word in that verse 
has a huge layer of meaning associated with it. It says this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. In Greek, the word Matthew used was Christ. That's the actual word. Christos is the word. Christos is the word that meant to rub oil on someone's forehead or to pour it on their head, anointing them. Christos came from the phrase to smear oil on something. And so the Christos, the Christ, is the anointed one. It just so happens that the Hebrew word, which is the one Matthew most likely spoke, is Messiah. It means exactly the same thing. Both of them just mean the guy who's been smeared with oil. Literally, that's what it means, the anointed one. But of course, when we use the phrase anointed one, we know it means something more than that. We know it means the one who's been chosen to identify as our leader. That's the one who's been chosen by God to be our leader. In the Old Testament, the priest was anointed. In the Old Testament, the king was anointed. Anointing meant he's our leader. But this says that Jesus is the one who was anointed to be the Messiah, anointed to be the king, the son of David, the greatest king of all, and the son of Abraham. Abraham is widely known as a wealthy man, a man who, for whom life worked all the time. Even when he lied, things still worked out well for him. Abraham was this guy that all of them would look back to. Sure, Moses got him out of Egypt, but Moses also placed a burden of these laws on them. Abraham was just this proverbial character who was well off. And he was their great, 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 great grandfather all the way back. So here's Jesus, the inheritor of Abraham and all of his wealth and the promise God made to him the inheritor of David and all of his authority and the promise God gave to David. And now here's Jesus, our Messiah. That's where it all begins. But then you've probably skipped over this next section because it's a genealogy. Matthew lists off a whole bunch of names. I'm going to read every one of them to you because this is part of the story of Jesus's origin that we don't usually pay attention to. But I'm going to go ahead and read them to you. It says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Just quick pause there. Throughout this genealogy, Matthew makes special effort to mention important women in the story. And nearly every one of them was a woman who was sexually abused. Tamar was one who tricked Jacob, tricked Judah to sleep with her. And then she had these children by him. Keep reading. It then says, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute hanging a red cord from the window of the, 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 her home in the wall of Jericho when the wall of Jericho came tumbling down after, after Joshua and all the others marched around it. That's Rahab. Well, you might not have remembered that Rahab was in the story and she was the mother of a guy named Boaz that we studied not too long ago. Boaz, of course, was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, another foreign woman. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, if you were counting, you would have gotten 14 names there. 
We'll come back to that. Keep reading. It then says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Again, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, the woman who was assaulted by King David, and then later King David married her, and she had the child named Solomon, who became the next king. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, sometimes known in the Old Testament as Jehoiachin, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. If you had been paying attention, you would have counted 14 names from Solomon through Jeconiah. We'll come back to that in a little bit. It then says, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconia was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah, counting only men. You would have gotten 13 names there. We'll come back to that. Because then Matthew says there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Quick comment on that. 14. Matthew is saying there were 14 generations. I have to give you two actual quick comments on that. Quick comment number one. Matthew's genealogy is not exhaustive. If you look in the Old Testament, you're going to find extra names that Matthew did not include. Does that mean that Matthew is lying? Does that mean that Matthew is not authentic? Does that mean that Matthew is not historically accurate? No. It means that Matthew is telling you a genealogy. And genealogies for his day were not a one-to-one correlation to all the biological ancestry that you had. Genealogies just simply meant the key figures in that person's life, their origin story. In fact, one way to translate it is these are the origins of Jesus the Messiah. But anyway, Matthew lists off these and he identifies the ones that he picked out as key and important. And he mentioned 14 going from Abraham to David, including Abraham and David, not including the women. He then mentioned 14 going from David to uh, Jeconia. Excuse me. Yeah, going from David, David to Jeconia, not counting David the second time because he was already in the first list. So it's actually Solomon through Jeconia, and there's 14. And then he mentions another only 13. But this last one, he has a woman in there named Mary who is not in the same category as the other women. The other women were specifically notable because of how they had been mistreated by men. And Mary in the story is not called just the mother of Jesus. She's called, she's not even called the wife of Joseph. Joseph is called the husband of Mary. So maybe the second 14 should include Mary as a key individual in the ancestry of Jesus. More accurately, probably Matthew meant that Jeconia needed to be treated, needed to be counted twice because Jeconia straddled the whole Babylonian thing. It's, a, it's an interesting story. I'll get into that sometime. But you know what? 
The point isn't who makes up the 14, although if, May, if Mary made up one of the 14, that's pretty significant. Historically speaking, that would be really cool. I'd love to be able to confirm that. But the point isn't who's in the 14. The point is who cares about the 14? Listen, I know you're sitting at home and you're wondering, Jeff, we're in chapter one. You've just read a whole bunch of names. Why are we bothering with this? Why do we even care about a list of 14 people? And if there's only 13 or 14, well, we care because Matthew cared. Well, why would Matthew care? Matthew says there were 14 and then there were 14 and then there were 14. There's just a little bit of information there that if you know from ancient history, it opens up something really fascinating. You see, the ancient Hebrew people didn't have a numbering system like we do. The Arabic system of numerals that we use wasn't invented by the time, you know, back when Moses was writing the Pentateuch or, or the kings were operating or David. You know, the, the Arabic number system came in relatively recently in human history. And so the Hebrews back in ancient times used their alphabet for their number system. And their alphabet includes the first seven letters. I put them here on the screen. I don't know if you can see them too clearly because they're probably all going to be real, real tiny and vertical. But they're in the live event notes, and so maybe you can see them there. But Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion. Those are the first seven that I'm listing for you. And what they did is they would assign a numerical value to each letter of the alphabet, and so their numbers were just words. They would use a word to refer to a number, and and they would come up with different words to remember different numbers and stuff like that, and they would just add the letters together. So take a look at it. You've got, let's take um, A, Aleph. If I wanted to make the number five, I could pick, hey, number five, or I could do a combination of things. I could have bet, and then I could also have gimel. And if I put bet and gimel together, then I've got the number five. And so you've got multiple ways of making numbers. And so numbers, since they were visible, since they were word-associated, they also had a lot of significant, like, metaphorical meanings. One last bit of information you need to know is that the Hebrews didn't spell their words with vowels. They didn't write down vowels. Even though Aleph is an A for us, the way we transliterate it, Aleph is actually a consonant in the Hebrew language. Um, They didn't use vowels. And so if you wanted to write the name David, for example, you would write it D-V-D. And if you were to calculate his number... It would be 4 plus 6 plus 4, which is 14. And true fans know the number of their hero. I noticed that my wife mentioned more numbers than most anybody else in our chat, and I'm proud of her for that. And the first one she mentioned, if I remember correctly, was Elway number seven. You know it! Elway number seven. You know Elway, John Elway from the Denver Broncos, was so important and such a great player that Ben Roethlisberger of the Pittsburgh Steelers chose to play with the number seven on his jersey because he loved Elway so much. John Elway, lucky number seven. Man, I love that jersey. 
23 in that number. Some of you mentioned that LeBron James was 23. No, he wasn't. I don't care what you say. He wears 23 on his jersey, but Michael Jordan was number 23. I don't know how LeBron James ever got, I think the entire NBA should have retired Michael Jordan's number, not just the Bulls, the whole NBA should have retired Michael Jordan's number when he retired because 23 should never be worn by anybody else. Kobe Bryant was 24, maybe you know that, and maybe you know another Bronco player who wore the number 18. Do you know this? Another Bronco who wore 18? That's right, Frank Tupica. Frank Tupica wore 18 and he was such a great player that they retired his number. But when Peyton Manning moved from the Colts to the Broncos, Frank's family came out and said, we would be honored if Frank's number came out of retirement and Peyton Manning wore it. Peyton wore number 18 on his jersey his entire career post high school. In high school, he was 16, but his brother played with 18, and his brother, his older brother Cooper, went to Ole Miss University and had an injury his freshman year there, and it made him leave football for life. So when Peyton made it to college, he decided he would wear number 18 in honor of his older brother who couldn't play, and then Peyton wore 18 the rest of his career. So doing it so much honor and so much good that when he went to the Broncos, who at the time only had two numbers retired, brought 18 out of retirement so that Manning could wear it. Anyone who's a true fan knows the number of their hero. And Matthew says Jesus had 14 generations and then 14 generations and then 14 generations. Jesus wore 14, 14, 14. Jesus was the most Davidy David of all the Davids who'd ever Davided. Jesus was the 14est of all the 14s. He was, they brought the number out of retirement for David, from David, for Jesus to wear. Jesus, number 14, according to Matthew, is the super David. He is the king of kings. He is above all other kings because the best king they had ever had is only a third of what Jesus is. You see, Matthew is telling us the genealogy of Jesus, the origin story of Jesus, to make a point. There is never, has never, and will never be a king greater than our king. You thought David was great? I got a triple David. Jesus' entire history is summarized by Matthew. With the number 14 is symbolic to say, there ain't never a king like Jesus. There hasn't been, and there never will be again. He is our king. Now, Matthew, clearly, by giving us that layer of detail in his story, is giving us a hint that only the true fans of Hebrew history and only the true fans of the greatest king in Hebrew culture will understand the significance of Jesus. And so he begins to tell his story of this king, our king, 
Now, we're going to skip over the story of Mary and Joseph. I'm going to come back to a little section of that later on. But you know the story so well. The angel coming to Mary, the angel visiting Joseph. The angel comes to Mary, recorded in the book of Luke. The angel comes to Joseph, recorded in the book of Matthew. And in the one in Matthew, Joseph is the one who says, okay, yes, I will take Mary to be my wife. And even though she is pregnant with a child, because the angel told him that the child was from the Holy Spirit and not from Joseph or any other man. And so Joseph then takes her into her home. She takes her into his home and she gives birth in Bethlehem. And then we come to this famous story, of course, you know it, the the wise men in chapter two. I'm going to skip there with you right now. Chapter two, what happens is after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, In Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, of course, you have to get how big of an affront this is. Because listen, they are coming to the guy who is called King Herod. They are coming to King Herod in King Herod's palace, and they are saying to King Herod, Where's the new king? We've seen a star in the sky that foretold a new king, and we have come to worship him. That's what magi do. Magi see the stars, they study the stars, and then they go to honor the greatest kings, and apparently they had never met Herod before. They didn't show up on Herod's front porch when he was born. Herod didn't get a star in the sky for himself, but these magi, these wise men, they show up and they say, listen. Okay, King Herod, you know, king in quotation marks, King Herod, where's the real king? We've come to worship him. Now, of course, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That means that the stars and the prophets are in alignment. The stars said, get to Judea. The prophets said, it's in Bethlehem. Both agreed, it's now, let's go. So the stars and the prophets are agreeing. Herod never had that before, but all of these Old Testament guys, they had some insight that Herod didn't have. These magi had some insight that Herod didn't have. And there's all about this baby that they need to go and worship for crying out loud. Magi weren't even Jewish. Why would they use the word worship? Of course, let's... Go to verse 11. It says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we've talked about these gifts before. We talk about them all the time. Gold, of course, it's the right gift for a king. The king is going to be wealthy beyond imagination, and so one paltry little gift of gold isn't that big of a deal, but the first gift of gold is a big deal, and they wanted to be the first ones to bring some gold to this little child who is going to be a great and mighty and powerful and glorious king. Gold, the symbol of glory. But the second one was frankincense. And this is interesting because incense was rarely associated with kings. 
the incense was always associated with gods or with priests who were serving a god. Priests would often burn incense to fill the temple they were working in so that anyone who came near could have the sense of the divine presence of God. The tabernacle was filled with incense. The temple was filled with incense. And these magi are bringing incense to this baby. But he's supposed to be the king. Does this mean he's also going to be a priest? Does this also mean that maybe, perhaps, this little baby has some aspect of divinity wired into him? Now, of course, the Magi don't know any of that. But they brought frankincense, and Matthew wants you to know that they brought frankincense. And and then the third one is myrrh. Myrrh was an incredibly valuable perfume. All of these gifts were incredibly valuable gifts. All of these gifts displayed glory like you could not imagine to a small carpenter family with his new wife who just gave birth to a child that's not his. These gifts are insane. But myrrh? Myrrh is an insane gift on another level because, see, myrrh was valuable, yes. Myrrh was incredibly worth, it was worth something. They could sell it and get a lot of money, buy more gold with it. But, but myrrh was a, was a spice perfume that was used in burial. It was strong enough that you could rub myrrh all over a body And it would allow the body smell to be held at bay for just long enough for you to go through the process of mourning and getting it into a tomb. Myrrh, a burial spice. Not the kind of gift you bring to a baby shower. You don't walk up to a baby shower and then you say to the mom and dad, by the way, I have taken the the liberty to purchase your child's headstone. You can put it anywhere you want, but I've already bought it. Here you go. Here's the certificate. You can put anything you want on it. You can put it wherever you want, but I've already bought the headstone. You don't give a baby a headstone. You don't give a baby myrrh. Unless you're somehow trying to imply that baby is not just going to be glorious, not just be sort of a priest, but is somehow going to die an untimely inappropriate death. Now, the Magi couldn't have known anything. I don't believe they knew the secrets of Jesus' future life. No one did. But Matthew did. And Matthew wanted you to know that, yeah, this king got gold. This king got frankincense. This king got myrrh. There are things about this king that we don't understand. There are things about this king that we can't understand because Jesus is the king beyond understanding. He's the king you just can't predict. Now, of course, you know the rest of the story. Herod finds out that the baby was born in Bethlehem. He then sends, the the Magi don't go back to Herod. They trick him. They leave by another route. Herod gets upset. He orders that all the babies in Bethlehem should be killed. All the babies under two years old. And then Mary and Joseph decide that they get warned by an angel. And so they decide they have to escape. And they run off to Egypt. And and you know the rest of the story. And I'm going to read a few segments of it. But you know, 
There are parts of the story that we don't spend a lot of time on in Christmas season because there's parts of the story that require a lot of background knowledge. There are parts of the story that only true fans would understand. There are parts of the story that if you didn't understand that David was 14, you wouldn't get this. But if you are the kind of guy like Matthew is who's writing to super fans about the greatest king ever, you would include these details as Matthew does. And so in Matthew, he gives us some details of prophecy. Now, a lot of people have read Matthew's quotations of prophets, and um, they've come to a variety of different conclusions. The most widely held conclusion is that Matthew was playing it a little fast and loose with Old Testament prophecy. One of the things we're going to look at today, Matthew looks like he's quoting the Old Testament, but it's a phrase that doesn't show up anywhere in the Old Testament. A couple of the other phrases we look at today, they are completely out of context, it seems. It doesn't make sense what he's quoting from the Old Testament and how he's applying it. There's a lot of times when Matthew does that. I'll give you an example. At the end of chapter one, when the angel meets Joseph, Matthew says, okay, there is a prophecy, and there's a prophecy in Isaiah, and that prophecy says, the virgin will be with child." And they will, she will give birth to a child, a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know that one. It's every year at Christmas time. Emmanuel, God with us. We sing the songs and all that stuff. But did you know that the Isaiah passage that Matthew is quoting is a passage about an earthly child who was actually born back then to a woman who was a virgin until she slept with her husband, who then had a child, and they named that child Maher Shalal Hash because that child was a symbol of the victory God was going to have against the enemies of God's people. It's a complicated story in Isaiah chapter 7 and other chapters around there, chapter 7 and chapter 9. It's a complicated kind of story, but it actually already happened. And so when Matthew claims that this child is going to be God with us, there's some weird things. And you're like, what is he actually doing there? Well, I'm going to jump into some of the verses in chapter 2 where he does this to show you something I think you need to know. Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. It says, So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, when I show you the Old Testament passage, you're going to agree with some of those scholars that Matthew is playing it fast and loose with the Old Testament prophets. It's from Hosea. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew only quotes the last phrase. He only quotes, out of Egypt I called my son. He doesn't quote the earlier phrase where we know that the son is referring to the entire nation of Israel. And the son is referring to the nation of Israel coming out of slavery into the promised land. And that God took his nation into the promised land just as he promised. And he brought them out of Egypt. And it's like, this is not a passage about the Messiah. This is not a passage about the king. This is not a passage about anything other than the fact that God loved his people enough that he took them out of Israel, out of Egypt, and brought them into the land of Israel. That's what it's talking about. Matthew, are you playing it a little fast and loose? No. Because, see, Matthew is writing to superfans. 
He's writing to people who know that David is 14. He's writing to people who know the Old Testament better than most. And when he says, out of Egypt I called my son, and he applies that to Jesus, he's not saying the Old Testament anticipated the Messiah would ever escape to Egypt. He's saying something completely better. He's saying that Jesus is Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew was applying that phrase to Jesus. Jesus is Israel somehow. Jesus is the real Israel. He is the fulfillment of Israel. Everything God ever promised to the nation of Israel has come together and it lives in Jesus. He's the one who went to Egypt and he's the one who then came back out. Jesus is Israel. If you're not with Jesus, you're not with Israel. If you are with Jesus, then you are with Israel. And Matthew is not talking about a political entity that exists outside of Jesus. It's not, here's Israel over here, and here's Jesus, and if you're on the side of Jesus, then you're also on the side of Israel. No, Matthew is saying Jesus is Israel. There is no Israel other than Jesus. He is it. He's the fulfillment. He is the son who came out of Egypt. Which then, of course, leads us to the second thing Matthew is trying to say, that Jesus is God's son somehow. He's God's true son somehow. Out of Egypt I called my son. God is saying, I called my son out of Egypt. That means Jesus is somehow the true son of God. Listen, if you think you understand this stuff yet, you don't. Because the entire book of Matthew is going to play this game with us. Jesus is the king of all kings. The greatest king. The best king. The most Davidy David king of all the kings. And you ain't never going to understand him. Because our king is somehow God's true son. Our king is somehow the entire nation of Israel fulfilled. Our king is the one who will wear a crown of thorns. But let's keep going. Because see, in Matthew 2.16, he gives us another little prophecy. It says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And so what Matthew does is he, he quotes how, how tragic this situation is and how these, these women are just going to be weeping for their children because their children have been killed because this foreign power, this Herod king who's not the true king has killed all their children. And man alive, this has got to be such a sad experience, but Matthew is quoting Jeremiah. And here's the weird part. The passage he quotes in Jeremiah is one of celebration and joy. Let me show it to you. In Jeremiah, it says this. We're going to begin all the way back in verse 13. It says, then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. 
This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. But this is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Your children are no more. Is not them dying. It's them being carried off into exile. And God says through this prophet, but they're coming back. Yes, there was a time of pain. Yes, there was a time of hurt. Yes, there was a time of difficulty. Yes, there was a time of exile. But guess what? They're coming back. So get ready to celebrate. And somehow Jesus is that kind of king. Jesus is the king of restoration after pain. But there's one more prophecy that Matthew mentions that is the most confusing and difficult of all of them. I don't have the answer to this next one, but I have a good one. Let me share it with you. We end, says, so he got up, this is Joseph again, in Egypt, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Herod has died. A new leader is in charge, and Joseph now comes back to Israel thinking that it might be safe. But in Judah, he doesn't want to be too close to the next king, Archelaus. And so, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And here's where it gets tough. Not a single prophet uses the word Nazarene at all. Nazareth, the city, didn't even really exist. Not a single prophet mentions that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. It doesn't show up in the Old Testament. You can search for the letters N-A-Z-I and you can find some information about the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament. You can find some information about Samson who was supposed to be a Nazarite, but nowhere is the phrase Nazarene as in a person who's from Nazareth. Nowhere does that show up. What is Matthew doing? Well, there's one thing that super fans of Jewish people would know. Nazareth isn't a Jewish city. Nazareth is a Gentile city. Nazareth? If you're from Nazareth, nah, you're not a real good Jew. We just doubt anything that comes from Nazareth. In other words, Nazarene is an insult. Let me prove it to you. In John, someone tells a guy named Nathaniel, that there's this guy named Jesus who's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's immediate response is, Nazareth? Can anything good come from, Na- from there? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip is like, come and see, I'll show you this guy, Jesus. But Nathaniel's like, can anything, seriously, Nazareth? No. See, I think Matthew says that the prophets proclaimed 
that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Because Matthew is using the word Nazarene as a pejorative, as a curse, as an insult. And what Matthew is saying is all of the prophets predicted that he would be insulted. That people would say insulting things about him. And it's true. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, others. I'll, I'll take you to Isaiah 53. It says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Matthew chapter 2 ends with Matthew reminding us that the greatest king of all kings, the most Davidy king of all the kings, triple 14 wearing Jesus, was called a Nazarite, was called a Nazarene, was called one of those, he was called names. And Jesus, according to Matthew, is going to be the king of rejection, the king of sorrow, the king of suffering, and the king of atonement. The king who sacrifices himself so that others can be saved. Because, see, he saves others, he doesn't save himself. Matthew is going to show us a different kind of king. It's not the king we want. I mean, we want a bully. We want a leader who will fight our battles. We want a leader who demonstrates greatness to the world so that we, underneath the umbrella of that leader, also look like great people. We want a leader who can be the biggest. We want the leader who can be the best. We want the leader who can absolutely supersede all the other leaders on the planet because if he's our leader, it doesn't matter if he's doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It just matters is he big enough to make us feel as big as we feel we should feel? But Jesus is the king who's bigger than all those other kings. Jesus is the king who actually saves people. He just doesn't save himself. What you're going to find in the book of Matthew and what I believe we need to find in our relationship with Jesus is that our king is the king of glory through suffering. Our king is the king of glory through suffering. This isn't a king who makes you feel great all the time. This isn't a king who makes you have blessings all the time. 
This is not a king who will defeat every one of your enemies when you want them to be defeated. This is not the kind of king who will make sure your paths are smooth all the time. This is not the king who will calm the storm every time a storm shows up. This is not the kind of king who will make sure you walk on top of the water and never sink. This is not that kind of king. This is the kind of king who will call you on the water even though he knows you're going to sink. This is the kind of king who will take you onto the boat, into the boat, onto the lake, even though he knows the storm is coming. This is the kind of king who will feed you one day, but the next day he won't. This is the kind of king who will actually bring glory to this world, to his heavenly father, and eventually to you only through suffering. Because this is the kind of king who can save others. He just doesn't save himself. So as you go this week, I want, to, I want you to embrace with joy the moments that you encounter a difficulty, the moments that you encounter a hardship, the moments when you are tempted to do the weeping like the Jeremiah passage talked about. But I want you to absolutely come down to this conviction that you have a king who's done it better than you You have a king who's walked through the hardship that was deeper than yours. You have a king who understands how to bring glory on the other side of suffering. So stay with your king. Stay with this king. He is our king. He is the one who wears the crown of thorns. And as we follow him, some days they're going to be thorny. But the glory is on the other side. And I know this is going to be true for you because I know it has been true for him because the book of Matthew gives me a whole lot of details of how he was the king none of us expected, but the king we desperately need. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.